Welcome to the first episode of our MMI podcast series, Tablets Broken Through Honesty. I am Kiyosha. And I am Vanessa. Today's episode is about gender identity. Since it is a touchy subject to talk about, especially in the Asian community, we are going to have a discussion on it in this episode so that we can gain a deeper understanding about this topic. We have invited Miss Elaine Fernandez on our podcast today to help us answer our burning questions in her area of expertise. She is the head of the Department of Psychology at Help University. She graduated with first class honors in Bachelor of Psychology and also obtained a master's degree in social psychology. Miss Elaine, thank you for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. All right. So, coming to today's episode, we all can agree that the formation of gender identity is not completely understood. Many factors have been suggested as influencing its development. Both biological and environmental factors are thought to play a role. Just to clarify the definition, gender identity is a person's internal and individual experience of being a particular gender. It is a person's sense of being a woman, a man, both, neither, or anywhere along the gender spectrum. A person's gender identity can be the same or different from their sex assigned at birth. On the other hand, gender expression is how a person expresses or presents their gender. This can include a person's behavior and outward appearance, for example, how they dress up, their body language and voice. A person's name is also a way of expressing gender. Miss Ling, could you tell us when and how do children develop their gender identity? Okay, so uh, people think about gender in general based on their sex assigned at birth. So meaning if a child is born male or female, uh, people start thinking and treating them as male or female, sometimes even before they're born. If you think about you know, the fact that we have gender reveal parties with blue and pink and all of that, uh, we're already thinking about the child in terms of uh, their gender even before we know what their identity is going to be like, right? So uh, the socialization process with regard to gender really starts as soon as the child enters the world, um, the toys they're given, the colors that they are associated with, and so on. So in terms of the child themselves, uh, around by around the age of who uh, they can already start recognizing that there are physical differences between uh, a male child and a female child as far as sex time at birth goes. Um, and, they, and by about five and six, uh, they can develop some kind of uh, what we call gender consistency, meaning they can uh, tell you that uh, I'm a boy and I'm a girl, and they'll also be able to tell you what uh, boys are supposed to do and how boys and girls are supposed to behave. Um, from that age onwards, though, as they grow, as they grow older, uh, they start experiencing a lot more pressure to conform to uh, gender norms. So you mentioned about uh, gender expression, how people are supposed to act in terms of uh, being a boy or being a girl or being a man or woman. Uh, men are supposed to be uh, strong and, and masculine and all the traits that are associated with masculinity. And women are supposed to be feminine and all the traits associated with that. So um, especially as you get older and you move towards uh, being uh, sexually uh, viable as far as you know, your reproductive system is being developed. So around the time of puberty and onwards, the pressure to conform to what people see as being male and female becomes 
heightened because also of the sexual implications um, and also how protective people are over female behaviors and what's appropriate and so on just to uh, protect their children from things like unwanted pregnancies and all of that. So all these other pressures come in to control um, children's behaviors uh, through their gender. So um, all of these contribute to uh, a person's sense of identity. Um, but this is also where it gets interesting because uh, gender norms are not necessarily intrinsic to sex, right? They can differ according to culture. And therefore, there's some evidence that these norms are a result of a socialization within a particular culture and are based on the expectations of the gender roles within that society itself. So gender identity development is very um, tied to the expectations in particular societal cultures as well. So they're not necessarily directly transferable from one culture to another. So, yeah. All right. So, uh, Miss Elaine, you say at around age five or six, that is when a person would have figured out if they're supposed to act a certain way, if they're of a certain gender, right? So, if that is the case, then why do some people feel like they're born in the wrong body? Would you care to explain more about them? Okay, so uh, it's it again comes down to quite a bit of a spectrum, so it really depends. But by around five or six, they can sort of start telling you that uh, they might feel different than they're supposed to be. They might want to uh, explore things that are not typically associated with their gender. They might be more comfortable with toys or activities that are not associated with their gender. So um, coming back to the concept of gender identity itself, it's generally seen as a schema, so a mental representation about what it means to be male and female and the content of the schema is usually linked to our socialization as I mentioned before and what others say or demonstrate to children as being male or female right including things like their gender role orientation uh, which is about the masculine and feminine traits and also things like gender expression so girls are supposed to wear uh, skirts girls can wear pink boys should wear pants they need to wear blue, so a boy who wears blue or a boy who wants to wear a skirt or put on nail polish is not conforming to the accepted gender expression, right? So when the person doesn't feel like who they are in relation to those gender norms or roles uh, is in line with their sex assigned at birth, then there is a discrepancy between what their anatomy is and what they're being told should be how they behave according to that anatomy. So when that discrepancy arises in terms of how they feel as an individual, but what they have physically, um, that's when people start feeling like, okay, who I am doesn't seem to match with what I am, if that makes sense. So um, that's sort of why some people feel like they're born in the wrong body, because the world is telling them that everything that they're experiencing is different from the physical form that they actually have. So, for example, if I'm a, I was born male, but my entire experience of the world, how I want to relate to the world, is typically classified as being uh, a female response, right? A female form of gender expression. Um, then that would be a 
significant discrepancy between how I am experiencing the world and how my body looks. So that's sort of why some people would feel that they are born in the wrong body. And that's one of the basis of the uh, idea of transgenderism to begin with. Oh, okay. So is then uh, being a transgender is a mental disorder, Ms. Ilin? Also, what is the difference between being a transgender and gender dysphoria? Okay, so um, since sort of uh, 2013, uh, we've stopped looking at or stopped classifying uh, being tra- transgender as a mental disorder. It was previously parked in the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders as under a um, sexual disorder. But right now, it's no longer the case. We have moved it into a separate category, which you've mentioned, which is gender dysphoria. And the purpose of this is because um, the focus has shifted away from the fact that they feel different to the distress that they experience as a result of feeling different. So that's, that's a difference there. Um, so we are not saying that um, because they don't feel like they are sex assigned at birth, that there's something wrong with them. It's more that they are experiencing distress as a result of that discrepancy. And therefore, that's what psychologists would typically work with, uh, not the fact that they feel differently. Um, so with regard to gender dysphoria, basically we are talking about people who experience a very strong desire to be someone of the other gender or who experience a strong dissociation with the, the sex that they were assigned at birth, but who also experience distress and problems functioning as a result for at least at least six months. So this is not something where um, if I, I'm a transgender person and I occasionally feel uh, down about it or anxious about it, that's not a diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria. The person has to have a persistent experience of distress and this should interfere with their day-to-day functioning before they are uh, diagnosed with gender dysphoria. So, um, no, we don't consider being transgender to be a psychological disorder. Um, And in fact, the World Health Organization in their International Classification of Diseases uh, 11th edition, they are going to change the classification, and in fact, they've already changed this on their website, uh, to gender incongruence away from gender identity disorder. So again, making the focus about the um, the distress that people experience as a result of the incongruence and less about the fact that there is an incongruence to begin with. So within the psychological community, just being transgender alone is no longer seen as a mental disorder. Um, and certainly it's possible to be transgender and not experience gender dys- dysphoria. So, I was just wondering, you know how some people, they do not identify themselves as a male or as a female? What can you tell us about them? Is that also a gender incongruence, as you said? Or is that more of a gender dysphoria? What pronouns should we use to address them? Okay, so um, with regard to sort of gender nonconformity in general, so obviously the transgender uh, individual typically identifies as male or female. Uh, However, there are many more people who 
don't necessarily identify so clearly with being male or female. So if you think about the fact that gender is a social construction that consists of various um, expectations and norms and traits assigned to what it means to be male or female, it's very possible for it to fall on a spectrum. So most people don't necessarily already feel uh, like they are 100% male or 100% female. So we do share characteristics across uh, being male and female. So, but for some people, of, but for most people, sorry, um, most of us feel like we associate ourselves with one or the other a little bit more strongly. So I definitely identify more with being a woman because I enjoy things that are feminine. I exhibit more feminine traits. I'm comfortable expressing myself femininely. So um, we are more comfortable with the fact that we are female or male. Whereas there are some people who don't feel like who they are actually falls within either of these binary categories in any kind of significant way. So those people we would typically uh, classify as being uh, gender non-conforming. Uh, other terminology is things like uh, gender queer, uh, intergender, bi-gender. So there's a lot of terminology out there and you could debate the validity of these classifications. But at the moment, what we do know is that there are people who are what we call gender non-conforming. Now, you talked about pronouns as well for people who don't identify uh, with being male or female. And typically, we would suggest asking them what pronouns they prefer because there are no sort of set pronouns for people who are gender non-conforming. So some people like to go with they, them, they are. Others use um, slightly more obscure pronouns that I think a lot of people may not be aware of. So this is, again, why it's important to ask because they use things like uh, zizim, zir, that sort of thing. So it's usually a good idea to find out from the person if you know that they're gender non-conforming, um, what pronoun they are more comfortable with. Um, that's usually what we would do in that situation. All right. Thank you for that. So like we should just ask them what they want to be called, just not to offend them. That's a lot of term to know about. Uh, well, um, speaking of discrimination, transgender people face pervasive discrimination in many areas of life, including work, school, public facilities, and healthcare. Some of them are rejected by their families or even forced out of their home. We hear many stories about them. They are often vulnerable to harassment and persecution. So it makes me wonder at times that why does society give people who do not follow gender norms such a hard time? Gender is the probably the easiest and most efficient way in which we categorize our world and how we understand the roles that different individuals have to play in a society. So gender role socialization is something that is highly embedded into our norms. So if you think about what I said earlier about how quickly we start uh, thinking about children in very specific ways, even by before they're born, as soon as we know what their gender is, we start planning for that person in terms of the gender that we assume that they're going to be. So when we have these uh, very strong ideas about what a person is supposed to be like, when they sort of violate that, 
or they don't conform to what we consider to be the norm, um, usually the first thing that uh, people would do in a group to a group member who is uh, contradictory or who doesn't conform to what the group norms are is we try to persuade them and convince them to follow the norm. And when that fails, and when that repeatedly fails, uh, we start seeing the individual as being deviant. And what happens with human beings when we think about our people as deviant is that we start to dehumanize them a little bit. And therefore, this starts to justify uh, our treatment of them as being somehow uh, an aberration to the group. And it makes us feel like it's okay to uh, punish them really for their deviance from group norms. So when this happens, um, what that usually manifests as is things like discrimination, uh, harassment, persecution, because you are different. You are not uh, what you should be as a man or as a woman. And therefore, this justifies me somehow being cruel to you in, in, in various ways, whether or not it's uh, as simple as uh, disowning you, so cutting you off from uh, family support, or as far as physical abuse. Um, we know of a lot of cases of transgender women in particular getting beat up or even killed for being transgender. So um, it is actually quite scary but it is a very uh, common sort of outcome of a strong group identity which gender is a very strong group identity um, and also what the outcomes are of a violation of that group identity. We see this a lot with religious identity as well in a lot of places how uh, sort of people who move out of a religious group are treated but because gender identity is so ingrained and there is a biological aspect to it compared to sort of other belief systems, um, people tend to react more strongly because of the implications that uh, this categorization may not necessarily be as clear-cut as we like it to be. And so that has that also threatens our, the way we think about society and the societal structures that we take for granted. So um, there's a lot of those elements as well. So what I'm understanding from what you have said, Miss Elaine, is that the problem lies in society in a way that our minds are too narrow to accept them as who they are. Um, to some extent, in some cases, yes, but I think it's it happens with a lot of people who are not necessarily narrow-minded as well. And this is a... a sort of outcome of just generally the way in which human beings categorize the world and the value we place on these categories. So it happens with everyone, right? When when you're part of a group and somebody in the group is behaving in a way that violates group norms, usually the way we, re we would respond is, how could you do that? How can you... Uh, act so differently to what we consider to be the right way to do things, right? So when you apply that to something as ingrained as gender, as inseparable from our, our identities as gender, then the reaction that you get to a violation becomes even stronger. So it may not be coming from a place of somebody wanting to be prejudiced or wanting to 
to discriminate or the fact that they may not uh, or coming from a place where they don't love their child or, or something along those lines. It's just we are fighting very powerful psychological mechanisms, um, which is why it's important for people to recognize that at the end of the day, uh, the concept of gender is still a, a construction, is something that we have created as a society. It's not necessarily fully tied to our biology. So until people fully understand that it's going to be very difficult for uh, a lot of people to make that differentiation. Thank you for your input. Um, one thing I find really interesting is that although they are being discriminated up to that point, some people still opt for a sex reassignment surgery. What are the contributing factors? And more importantly, is the surgery reversible? Okay, so um, I think the a couple of reasons why people would want to opt for sex reassignment surgery. Uh, if you look at the criteria for somebody to actually be considered transgender, it actually includes things like um, a strong dislike of their primary and reproductive sexual characteristics and a strong desire to have the primary and sexual characteristics of the other gender. So um, this is one of the sort of drivers of that identity itself. So um, when you're, when who you are is so different from what you look like, uh, there's always going to be a sense of incongruence. So I think for some people, um, the drive to actually have that sex reassignment surgery is just so that they can eliminate uh, some of the incongruence uh, from their day-to-day experience. Um, there's also the, the factor of how they're treated as well. So if I look still like a man, but I actually have an identity as a female, uh, that expressed incongruence can invite a lot more uh, harassment, ridicule, and so on. So if I look more like how I feel, then I may be able to avoid some of that harassment and the treatment that other people give me as a result of that incongruence. So um, the, those factors as well. But in terms of uh, actually getting a sex reassignment surgery, uh, if you go to anywhere that is legitimate, uh, they don't just accept anyone who comes in and says they want to change their uh, sexual and reproductive characteristics. They usually would require you to get uh, an assessment from uh, mental health professionals who are familiar with gender identity issues uh, they would require that you have a, a clean bill of health, both physical and mental. Uh, they would also require that you are an adult, so 18 and above, capable of making your own decisions. And some even look at factors like, is there a social support system and network that you can uh, fall back on post-surgery and all of that kind of stuff. So it's not so simple to get a sex reassignment surgery at uh, at a legitimate uh, hospital or clinic that do these things. Um, usually the person's mental health is of paramount and they usually want to be very sure that this is something that the person wants. Other criteria are things like they've already undergone some kind of hormone treatment and also been living as the other gender for a significant amount of time, I think possibly up to a year at least. So these are decisions that are not made lightly and they are very much in conversation and in assessment of the individual's state 
before a surgery is even conducted. With regard to reversibility, um, it has been done. So people have what we call detransitioned before, uh, but very few places around the world do this uh, because it is a very risky surgery. To be. It's, it's risky enough to do sex reassignment uh, in the first instance. It's more risky to try and reverse it um, after the fact. So there are very few people who actually do this, but it is possible. Um, but again, subject to a whole slew of uh, mental health assessments, physical assessments, and so on. Uh, Miss Lim, I actually have a question for you. Why does their mental health have to be assessed before the surgery since you said it is not a mental problem, right? It's not about determining that their mental health is tied to their transgenderism. So it's not about necessarily checking whether or not they are actually transgender. So so the idea here is, is this person opting for gender reassignment surgery because they are actually transgender or because they are experiencing some kind of psychological issue that they're trying to um, address through getting the sex reassignment surgery, right? So if let's say this person is feeling very depressed and they make that and they would meet the criteria for major depressive disorder, for example, are they making the decision to get the surgery because they think it's going to help them with MDD? Or are they actually doing it because uh, in a clear state of mind, this is what they want to do? So it's not about the gender identity. It's the other associated disorders that somebody with uh, who is transgender might be experiencing and might be the reason for why they're choosing the surgery and not something they would decide on otherwise. So it's about um, whether or not at that point in time, their decision-making is incapacitated in any kind of way. Right. I'm sure that would be a very great insight for everyone who's been wondering about uh, transgenderism. Uh, Now shifting our focus to gender roles. Gender roles in society means how we are expected to act, speak, dress, and conduct ourselves based upon our assigned sex. For example, girls are generally expected to dress in a feminine way, be polite, accommodating, and nurturing, whereas men are generally expected to be strong, aggressive, and bold. That's true. Our society has a set of ideas about how men and women are expected to behave. For instance, a boy who's upset and cries may get told off to be a man or stop crying like a girl. Boys who are more feminine may also be singled out and bullied. So, Miss Elaine, what happens when gender roles are forced onto kids? Or, in other words, how can traditional gender roles and stereotypes affect children? Does this have an impact on one's gender identity? Generally speaking, it's extremely difficult to avoid gender role socialization, as our society, as I mentioned before, is built around these binary gender categories. So, the issue with rigidity, right, of how these are applied is that there are almost assumptions that a general orientation like masculine and feminine are exclusively the purviews of uh, being male or female. And the traits associated with this would be manifested accordingly. So what that means is in societies where there is this expectation that if you're a man, you have to behave masculine. And if you're a woman, you have to behave feminine. Any, and any cross-germination of these traits is frowned upon. The problem there is that then uh, pe- 
people who experience um, or exhibit traits that are different are likely to be shut down or treated or or being made to suppress those traits. So for example, if a boy experiences softer emotions and expresses those like sadness when he cries, or if he's emotionally hurt and he expresses that, um, what you mentioned earlier about only girls cry or stop crying don't and, and be a man, uh, what boys learn after a while is to suppress the softer emotions and only exhibit, exhibit masculine emotions like anger, right? So when this happens, what boys stop learning how to do is correctly identify certain emotions and express those appropriately. So when they experience softer emotions, that gets flipped around and turns into a form of anger, even if what they're experiencing is not necessarily anger. And as a result, they may not know how to let people know when they are actually feeling depression um, or going through depression or anxiety. And this can lead to um, significant issues later on when they are experiencing psychological distress for them to look for help for these issues. Because sometimes they may not even know how to put a label on it because for the longest time they have had to suppress it. Uh, similarly with women, um, if we are forced into very rigid gender roles, then what women learn is that they have to be agreeable all the time. It is not appropriate for a woman to uh, force her way through or to be brash or to be confident. And therefore, this could lead to women also then um, checking their behaviours and potentially result in them not going as far ahead in life as they could. So uh, when we talk about sort of gender differences, uh, these differences may or may not be as a result of biology, but they are certainly a result of socialization. So if, it's, if you look at how women behave in the workplace and how assertive women feel like they can be, or how both men and women evaluate uh, women who are a little bit more out there, a little bit more assertive, sometimes that can be negative, the evaluations, even from women who feel like this women, woman is violating a female gender norm of some sort. So even for cisgender individuals, rigid gender role socialization can have uh, a lot of negative consequences. That's not to say that um, we should take it away entirely because at this point in time, it's not really possible. But what we would like people to think about is the idea that masculinity and feminine, femininity are not exclusive to either gender and there is a need for both traits for individuals to be able to exhibit both traits comfortably in order for them to be a more holistic human being right so um with regard to transgender individuals uh what's really interesting i think for me is that despite such um strong socialization forces there are people who still do not feel like they are sex assigned at birth. And this is one of the indicators that um, being transgender is not some choice that a person is making in order to be contrarian or non-conformist. It is coming from a place where they genuinely don't feel like they their identity matches up with how they were born. So um, 
it's very interesting that in face of such strong discrimination and prejudice, that they are still willing to be non-conforming and to try and be true to the identity that they feel that they have. So um, socialization is is very is something that we can't escape, but we can sort of broaden our view of what it means to be male and female uh, in order to try and see if we can uh, develop individuals who are more comfortable being who they are, um, regardless of gender. So, Ms. Ilin, is there a link between gender identity and sexual orientation? Uh, not directly. So, sexual orientation refers to our who we are sexually attracted to in terms of the other person's gender. So, for just like with, with cisgender individuals, transgender individuals can be attracted to people of uh, either sex or of no gender identity in particular. So, for example, if a trans woman was previously attracted to uh, women, then she would have been straight before, but now that she's transitioned, she would be considered a lesbian um, because she's a trans woman who is attracted to women. So it really is about what your gender is in relation to the gender of the person you're attracted to. So sexual orientation is separate from gender in that sense. Like you, if you're a trans woman, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a lesbian or, a, or straight. Likewise, if you're a trans man, it doesn't mean you're going to be straight or a lesbian. It really depends on who you are attracted to. Right. That is actually quite interesting. So uh, can you please simplify that again? So if I'm a female and I want to be a male, so I become a male, and now I'm attracted to females. So am I straight? No, because I was a woman before, but now I'm attracted to females now that I've become a man. So am I considered straight or am I gay? Yeah. Okay, so... Typically, the sexual preference won't change from whether you're female or male. So if you, you are now a female, but then you, trans, you transition to male, who you're attracted to doesn't change as a result. So when you were female and you were attracted to women, you would have been considered a lesbian. Once you transition to male and you're still attracted to women, then now you're straight. Oh, okay. So, the, so what we are arguing is that it's not part of your... Um, gender identity because who you're attracted to doesn't change as a result of the transition. It's just the label that you would put on it that would change. Okay. Well, I think we've covered a lot of grounds today. We have discussed like extensively on the topic of gender identity development. We've also talked about gender roles, sexual orientation, transgenderism, and the non-binary or gender fluid. Before we end, Miss Elaine, do you have any advice for people who are feeling confused about their gender identity? Um, yeah, so if you are experiencing uh, any confusion about who you are or you're quite aware of who you are, but you have you don't know who you can safely express it to or even discuss your options with, uh, thankfully, I think in Malaysia, there's a number of foundations that are already working with people who are transgender or who are gender non-conforming. Um, so you've got foundations like the PT Foundation, the Seed Foundation, Justice for Sisters. Um, PT Foundation in particular does have counsellors who work with people who 
uh, are of the LGBTQ community. So uh, you can reach out to these organizations. Um, you can even talk to them anonymously at first um, and then decide whether you want to proceed to access their services. But it is a good idea to try and see if you can talk to somebody, especially a mental health professional, um, within these organizations so that you know that they are LGBTQ friendly um, to sort of sort through um, your thoughts and your concerns about your gender identity. So being confused about it doesn't necessarily make you one or the other, but it's a good idea to uh, talk to somebody to just see uh, where you are and how you feel and if there is any incongruence, how you're going to address that. So um, there is thankfully uh, more and more help available. Uh, it's a good idea to try and see if you can access this help. All right. Thank you so much for your advice. And Ms. Elaine, thank you so much for your time for being on the show. It has been a very insightful conversation to have with you. Yes, I'm sure many of us uh, would have gained a deeper understanding on this topic, which are very often to be seen as taboos during discussions. Thank you again, Ms. Elaine. And thank you all for tuning in this week's episode. Uh, stay tuned for episode two next week.